this morning, this scene that we're going to look at this morning from the story of Isaiah had a twist, a big twist. Now, when we look at this relationship between Hosea and Goma, Goma's problem, strangely, isn't that she's a prostitute. Goma's problem isn't that she's sleeping around. It's not even that she's chasing off after all sorts of lovers and, and she's selling her body for hire while she's married to Hosea. They, they aren't really her problem. Her problem is she has a much deeper issue that causes her to do that. You know, a lot of the things that happen in our life don't happen because in isolation. They happen because we have root issues in our lives. We have, we have underlying things that make us behave in certain ways. And for Goma, she, her problem is the counterfeit thing she is seeking to fill a hole in her life. You see, we are designed to seek certain things in our life. And Goma's problem was she was seeking all sorts of things to fill that hole. And she was going about it in all the sort of all the wrong ways. Now, as we know, God's doing this, God's telling this story, he's, he's making Hosea act out how he feels about his relationship with his people. So when we when we're looking at this, you, you've got to look at it at two levels. Firstly, like at a personal level, between you know it's a story of Hosea and Gomer, but there's a bigger story which how God relates to us. And, and the whole point of why he gets Hosea to do this, the Bible tells us, is because he wants to communicate to his people how he feels about them. It's a, it's a feel, it's God trying to express to his people how he feels about what they're doing. So you can look at it on two levels. You can look at it about how God's expressing to you what he's doing, or you can look at it on the story level of Hosea and Gomer. But the point of the story of Isaiah and Gomer is it's meant to illustrate how God feels about you. And Gomer, is, she's out looking for all sorts of things that are going to give her life significance. We all want to be significant, don't we? We, we want to feel there's a reason why we're on planet Earth. Yeah. So Gomer is looking for all sorts of things that she feels will make her significant or, or make her feel like, like she... There's a reason that she's there. So she, she seeks like fake love, temporary highs. She, she's looking for personal power. One of the, the big traits that we see in Goma is that she uses and goes looking for other people that she forms relationships with in order to further her own ambitions. And she builds, she, she goes looking for uh, networks and, you know, we call it networking these days, don't we? But she's looking for people and forming relationships with the, the idea that if she can get to the right people, they will help her achieve what she wants to achieve. In other words, she's trying to get where she wants to be, but not in God's ways. And we can see that so often in, in the way we behave and the way people behave. Now, big caveat, and I just want you to understand something. One of the, the things, I, Cheryl and I really believe that God has given us to communicate is grace. The gospel is about grace. And so, 
you might be thinking, I'm going to beat you up all about these things that Goldman's doing wrong and say, ah, you terrible sinners, you're doing this. No, that's not grace. That's, that's religion. That's why I'm doing this. You see, it's natural for us to desire things. We were made to desire things. We actually, you are actually hardwired to want to be happy. You are hardwired for joy. You are hardwired to achieve things. You are hardwired to look for opportunities. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that, that God's got some sort of like uh, killjoy. He, you know, he's not sat in heaven trying to make you miserable. God is pursuing you because he wants you to be happy. But he wants you to know that the happiness that you seek without him isn't anything compared to the happiness you can have when it's rooted in him. So when, he, when we see Goma, she's trying to achieve all these things that are good aims in the wrong way. And, and we can often find that in, in our lives and in people's lives, that we try and achieve good things, but in ungodly ways. And the problem is this, that when we go looking for and, and seek out, let's be blunt, uh, status, titles, opportunity, um, standing, sex, money. When we, when we seek out all those things, then ultimately, if we seek them for themselves, we find out that they cannot provide what we're looking for. And the reason for that is we're expecting too much of those things. They're, they're not designed to give that. They're not designed to fill that hole in our lives. They're not designed to do that. They are designed to be a byproduct of our relationship with God. And, and therefore, they fit in the right places. And that's what makes us happy when we're in relationship with God. So bottom line is this. When our heart pursues other things in God, or when we seek things apart from God, whether good or bad, then we find they don't return to us what we hope for. And I've seen this in so many people's lives, in, in church and outside of church, where we, we go chasing things, and somewhere along the line, the things that we are chasing, the standing that we are chasing, suddenly, somewhere down the line, it becomes more important than God. We forget God. And, and it's not that those things are bad, it's just we're going around it the wrong way. So in Goma, we see this woman, and, and again, remember, it's meant to be an illustration of us, who is chasing unworthy things, or chasing worthy things in unworthy ways. Ways that, because she's after what she wants. And gradually, and over time, we see in this story that she finds out that these things don't fulfill because she hasn't chased them and gone after them in the right way. She's gone after them without her husband. And for us, the, the illustration is when we go after them without God. 
or in ways that aren't godly. And we find out that this promise disappoints. Now, in this, in looking at Hosea, it's, for me, it walks me through a lot of the events of my life. Not that I'm married a prostitute or anything like that, or any of that, but it reminds me a lot about my walk from religion to grace, my walk from religion to relationship. And, and how God walked that through. Because God is active in our lives to bring about that relationship that he wants with us. And um, I remember this, you know, I think I, t- I took the story last time up to a certain point of, of actually walking into the presence of God in, 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 a, in a church in Sunderland and just feeling how much God loved me and his presence there. Now, one of the things that, that happened after that, is that that then threw me into a real quandary because that event sort of coincided with me reaching the pinnacle of my career. I mean, it happened about three weeks after I first became a partner in, in the accountancy firm I was part of. So I've just got to the pinnacle of my career and, and God has just revealed himself in a totally different way to me. And... Um, after that, one of the things that, that he did is, and I'll tell the story of this another time, but he started to move me into a place where the thing that I'd just achieved didn't fulfill. And the longer I did it, the less it fulfilled. But the problem was, I was really good at it. I was really good at it, and there's this thing, and I wanted to know God more. I, I wanted more of God in my life, and my career was becoming increasingly successful and my earnings were going up and up and up. And I remember that, that, that we, we don't recognize it at the time, but I remember how different steps along the way, God made it clear he was after me. And I remember I was traveling into London. Now, if you know the last thing, that, that lots of things happened to me around the area of trains. I, I got saved because some mates of mine set fire to a train. I'm not going to do that. But I'm travelling into London on a train. And um, now what you've got to understand for, is that I was uh, one of the like, top tax planners in the UK. Okay, so I, I designed tax planning schemes. I implemented tax planning schemes. All the things that, that chancellors get very upset about now. And so I'm going into London on the train, and I, I hit, you know, it's not an audible voice, but these, the, I, I have this picture, this vision of me stood before God, you know, stood in front of the judgment seat. And it wasn't scary at all, because I, I know I'm saved. That's not the point. But I'm stood in front of the judgment seat, and, and I, I hear God saying, what, what are you going to say you did with your life? And I heard myself answered, I saved rich people a lot of tax. <laughs> and then I thought, that's not going to go well, is it? <laughs> it's not going to sound too cool. And it, and it was like a wake-up call for me. Now, I didn't stop being an accountant. I didn't stop doing that. But what I did do is I resolved in my heart that I would not sell aggressive tax planning schemes. Now, that's, that's not easy when you're part of a big partnership because 
your earnings are driven by how many fees you bring in, and they brought in big fees. But I resolved I wouldn't do that. So I, I switched tactics and decided that what I'd do instead is I'd go out and visit all my clients and build a relationship with them. And what happened over the next two years is that the department I ran grew quicker than any of the other established parts of our business, even though I wasn't doing what I'd done before. Because God blessed it and clients came in because they wanted somebody they could trust, not somebody who was just trying to sell to them. But it's, it's that God comes at certain points in our life and he tries to show you that the direction you're going in isn't the best for you. There's, not, there, you know, there's nothing illegal about what I was doing. There's, in fact, most people would have cheered me on. Who wants to save tax? Who would like to pay less tax in this room? You see, you wouldn't have been upset if I'd come and said, well, if you do it this way, you'll pay less tax, would you? But it's not what God wanted for me. It's not the best for me. And we're going to see this with us here. Now, if you go to chapter 2, I'm just going to walk you through this. So, in verse 2, we come up with this thing, and it, and it says, you, you might have different versions. My version says, contend. Plead, some of them say. Plead, contend against your mother, bring charges. For she, so, she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. That's quite strong words, isn't it? Now, none of this is going to make sense if you don't understand what's happening here and what that word plead or contend is. Because without that, sometimes we read the Bible and it's in English and we just don't get it. That word plead or contend, that is a legal word the, the Hebrew is R-I-B-U, ribu. And basically what it means is the idea is God has taken Israel to a divorce court or um, Hosea has taken Gomer to the divorce court. This is a, div a contentious divorce hearing. And so Yahweh, God, has taken his unfaithful wife, Israel, to the divorce court or taken to the divorce court people who are not walking in his ways. Now, what we need to know and what we need to understand is that God, at this point, is within his rights to do two things because this is a law. This is a law Israel operates under. God can do two things at this point. He can stand up in front of the judge and he can, he can go to the judge and say, I have justification and we've got loads of witnesses that, number one, I can divorce her. But number two, I can ask for the death penalty. That's God's rights. That's, that's religion talking. Have you, you know, religion is like that. It wants to, to get you and take control of your life and humble you and, and exercise control over you by judging everything you do. And you can tell you when you're around that sort of person because you never feel good enough. You always feel like, like they're, they're better or they know better. And God isn't like that. And what we're going to see is that Hosea does something quite astonishing. So let's go on a bit. By the way, some of you might be having a problem. You might be thinking, well, I'm not going to marry a prostitute. Okay, so where, where's this relevant to me? 
I'm, I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm not like that Goma woman. Prostitution, when you look it up in the dictionary, doesn't just refer to the obvious. Prostitution, actually, dictionary definition, is selling your talents and abilities for an unworthy cause. And, and that's the point of this story. Will, will we live for the kingdom or we will live for something else? That's the point of the whole story of Isaiah. Are you going to live for the kingdom or are you going to live in a different way to get your needs met? That's the point of the whole story. So we get on to verse 2. Um, Adultery is from between her rest. By the way, what that means is it's nothing too exciting. Basically, uh, people who were in all the, the cults and the religious practices around in that time, worshipping the Baals, they used to uh, wear all sorts of jewellery that sort of dangled down here in order to show that they were available. That, that's all it's saying. So let's go on to the next verse. Lest I strip her naked, expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, set her like dry land, and slay her with thirst. Why is he saying these things? Because it doesn't sound very nice, does it? Let me just explain those for a moment. Basically, what Hosea is saying is, I am going to, and remember this is God saying it to the people who were walking in unworthy ways, different from his. He's saying, I'm going to do something. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away my hand off her life. So all those things that I'm obliged to provide as her husband, or as your God, I'm going to stop. I'm going to leave you, 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 you know, you're going to have to look for your clothing somewhere else. You're going to have to look for your food somewhere else. And, and basically, he's having a go at the false gods in the land. There was this guy, this false god called Baal, Baal is the god of rain, he's the god of fertility, he's the god of things coming up and growing really well. And basically, God's saying, I'm going to withdraw my hand and you can experience what happens without me. And you will find that as I withdraw my hand and you experience what life's like without me, your god Baal ain't going to be able to produce rain and he ain't going to produce good crops and things are going to go badly for you. Now, remember, this is better than God could do because the death penalty is what he could do. Do you not think it's amazing that we have a God that however much this world hates him, still chooses not to roll it all up, blow it away and start again. But instead, he loves us so much that he comes to save us from it. I just think that's an amazing God. Because if I was God, I'd have gone, that one didn't work. Let's, let's, have, let's have another one. Let's might get my new creation airfix kit out and make a new world with some nicer people. But he doesn't do that because principally he loves. And he can't, we don't like to, often don't think of God like that, but he can't bear the thought of hurting those he loves. So let's, let's carry on. Why is he saying these things? He's saying these things because we know that Goma, their mother of Israel, has played the harlot. She's conceived them, behaved shamefully. For she said, it's her decision. Remember, Hosea, or God, would have provided what they needed. He was there to look after them. But she decides she's going to do it her way. And so... She just said, I will go after my lovers. Now, 
my is an important word there, my lovers, who gave me my bread, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. You see, God gives us things in our life that work really well in our relationship with him. Outside that, they don't work so well. And when we, when we look at those things, oil and drink and all that, what she's basically saying is this, that I'm going to use the gifts and the talents and the anointing, the oil and the drink, the anointing that God put on my life, and I'm going to take the credit for it. I'm going to use the anointing that God gave me, and I'm going to take the credit for it. And, and we can often get in that place when we forget God and try and do everything ourselves, where the anointing on our life, we go, it was all me. I did it. I made that happen. I caused that to happen. It was all me. Now, if you were God at this point, what would you do? Straight question. If you God, and, and, and your, your people were behaving like this to you, what would you do? Now, I don't want the religious answer, and what, what would you do? Pardon? Blow them away. That's a good one. Anybody else, anything more aggressive than blow them away? I guarantee to you, unless you're like super holy and, and much better than I am, you, you wouldn't come up with the conclusion that God comes up with as to what to do with these people, what to do with that sort of person that's taking everything, um, going after everything in ways that aren't his, and taking all the credit for everything that they do get. I wouldn't feel kind of good towards that person. Honestly, I wouldn't. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd repent of that as your pastor. I'd, I ought to have more than that. But inside, my, my emotions wouldn't feel that good on that. So what does, what does, what does Hosea say is do? In other words, what does God say he's going to do? Now, this is where it starts to get interesting. This is what God, remember he's in the divorce court, he's put all those things up, he said, that's all the things she's done wrong. That's all the things I could do. I'm not going to go for the death penalty, but I'm going to do these things. I'm going to lift my hand off her. I'm going to stop being her provision. I'm going to let her see what the consequences are of her doing what she's doing. I'm going to let my people see what the consequences of doing what they're doing is. And so this, he starts to say this, and he says, right, okay, this is, this is the way it's going to work. Next verse. Therefore, behold, therefore comes after all the rest of it, so it's linked to that. Behold, this is what I'm going to do. I will hedge up, block your way with thorns, and wall her in so she cannot find her paths. What's that about then? Now, remember what she's trying to do. She's trying to find every route to avoid God. God's saying, although I'm lifting off my hand of protection from these people, I'm going to make it work so that they won't be able to find what they're looking for anywhere apart from me. They're going to try, but they're not going to be able to find it because I'm active in this because I've got an outcome that I want. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to block these paths. So every time they try and find a route of achieving things without me or in ways that aren't mine, 
it's going to come up badly. It won't work. It won't produce what you expect it'll produce. Let's go on to the next verse. She will chase her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She'll not catch up with them. She'll seek them, but not find them. Then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. This is huge. That, that is twisting the tail, number one. Why would God treat somebody like this? Why would God take away the provision? Why would he lift his hand? Why would he block the pass? Why would it make it hard? Why, when people want to go their own way, would he let them go? And this, this is what stuns me about God. Because what he's saying is even though the only reason she would come back to me, or my people would come back to me, is that they have no other option, I'll still take them back on those terms. This is absolutely stunning. God is saying... I am willing to be last in line for your affections and I'll wait for you there till you come back to me. I'm willing to, to take everything that you're doing to me and I'll still be there waiting. That is incredible. I'm not going to demand the death penalty. I'm not going to demand the divorce. I'm going to lift my hand and I'm going to believe you're going to come back to me. I'm going to believe you're going to see it. Now, you go, well, okay, well, this is Old Testament. This is Old Testament. You're right. Good point. So how does this apply to you? Well, it's actually an eternal principle that goes all the way through God's word. And this is what most, you know, many people don't know this. But in Romans chapter 1, we see the same principle. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. You, quite familiar verses, although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, so it's talking about mankind, who had a revelation of God, so they knew him, but they didn't glorify him as God. In other words, they had other gods and other things that they were looking for for provision. Nor were they thankful, they were unthankful, but became futile in their thoughts, foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. Who wants to be a fool? Nobody, so we pay attention at this point. So professing to be wise, became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Keep going. Therefore, God... So, people have basically said, we know God, but we're not going to follow his ways and we're going to start to forget about him and do things our way. So, all these things that God, talents and abilities and everything God's given me, I'm going to do it my way. Therefore, God gave them up to their uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for light and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. So, when God deals with creation, we can see that one of the things that God does is he says, if you want to walk your own way, you can. In fact, I'm going to help you. Off you go, do it. I'm going to let you go. 
Now, that, that, you might go, well, that's whole of creation. Well, let's have a look at what Paul says about somebody in the church. In uh, 1 Timothy, Paul advises Timothy to treat somebody in a certain way. This is what he said. You may wage good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, so rejected good conscience, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Of whom are, I can't say that, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now look at that. Who I delivered over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme against God. God says, and this is stunning, you can have what you want. You can have what you want. Have you ever thought of God like that? How, how's, how's that work? Basically, it's this. If you keep on wanting something, and you keep on wanting it, and you keep on pursuing it, and you keep on chasing it, and you keep on going after that, and using the talents and the gifts and the abilities and the anointing God's given you, and you keep going after it and keep going after it, eventually God will stop saying no, and he'll say yes. And that is the most dangerous place to be. The most dangerous place you can be is to get everything you want without God. That's the bottom line. That's why God takes this so seriously. The most dangerous place you can be is to get everything you want without God. Or get everything you want in ungodly ways. Most dangerous place you can be. Why? Because God has lifted his hand off your life. And everything you thought you were going to get, you won't. Why would God do this? Remember, he's driven by love. Why, why is God doing this? He's doing this because repentance, turning back to him, works in a certain way. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand why I, I don't do this. I don't tell you how bad you are. Um, try and tell you that you're miserable and hopeless and just an absolute sinner. And then we could, what we could do is we'll get the worship team up and they can sing songs about the mercy seat or something like that and, and, and try and get you all to come down here every week and repent. Why? Because that's not how it works. That's how religion works, and God's a million miles away from religion. He's in relationship. He's about relationship. Now, so what causes people to turn around? What causes people to change? What causes people to believe? What causes Christians to turn their life around? Romans 2 verse 4 tells us, he says, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So to get people to turn around, to get that unfaithful wife, that, that unfaithful person we are, the one that's abusing everything that God's given her, the one that's taken everything, the one that, that is walking away from her faithful husband, to get her to see what's she doing. He's showing her what life's like without her so she can see his goodness, and come back. This is the worst divorce case I've ever heard. Because he stood there in court saying, I want you back. 
And because I want you back, I'm going to lift my hand off your life. I want you back. I'm prepared to be the last in line. I'm prepared for you to come back just because you have no other options. I still want you back. I'm still coming after you. I still want you because I love you that much. And that's what he says to us. That's what he's saying to us. I still want you that much. That, that whatever it is that, that you have been about in your life, when you've used all those things I gave you for unworthy things, when you've gone about stuff in unworthy ways, when you've walked away from me, I still want you, even if it means I'm only getting you because you've got no other options at this point, because I know that if you see my goodness, you'll turn and you'll want me. And God's prepared to put it out there and take that risk. Now, think about this from God's perspective of, of withdrawing his love and his protection and his hand and his provision from somebody he loves and seeing it abused. How does he feel? You know, there's, there's a verse that we come to in the passage in Hosea and it says this, that basically, actually we've read it, the, the jewellery, it's her jewellery. You know, the one she's using to entice the other lovers. It's her jewellery. Now, when I was um, in Manchester um, and the business was going really well, one of the things that I used to, I, I just used to love doing it. So we'd go out for our Christmas meal. I'd take, we'd take, I'd take my department out for our Christmas meal and we'd celebrate all the things that we'd done. And we used to go to this Italian restaurant in the middle of Manchester called Paolo's and uh, we used to eat all our Italian Christmas food and we'd have a great time and drink lots of wine and I'd get the train home. I just got the train home, honestly. Um, and... One thing I delighted in doing is that the restaurant was near this place in the centre of Manchester called St Anne's Square, which is like posh shopping bit of Manchester. Manchester, when we say posh shopping bit of Manchester, we mean a back street in Cambridge. You know, there are no posh shopping bits in Manchester. But posh shopping bit of Manchester, and it had these jewellers in. And each year, while I, while I was in Manchester, after um, I'd had my Christmas meal, I used to go off on my own, and on my way to the train station, I used to go in there, and I'd been looking, at, looking for weeks, and I used to go in, and I used to get Cheryl a piece of jewellery for Christmas. Didn't I? Oh. And, and then on Christmas Day, it was so exciting, because she'd, she'd get this little thing. It was always like down, down at the last present I gave her, because she's thinking, I wonder if he's done anything this year. Now she knows he's not going to do anything this year. <laughs> but... So she'd get this, get this little box and she'd open it and she'd be so excited. And, and I just loved it. I loved that what happened on her face and when she like put the necklace on and, and all that sort of stuff. Now imagine if I'm God and she uses that necklace and walks out the very next day to charm somebody to sleep with him. How do I feel? The love that God has for us can go beyond that feeling. The love that God has, has for us goes beyond that and he'll still keep loving and pursuing. But he's going to do some things to win us back and we're not going to like them. Because when he lifts his hand, certain things happen. Let's go to verse 10. I've lost, where did I put my Bible? Ah, 
Now, I, this, is, this is the consequences of God lifting his hand. This is the consequences of God saying, I love you. Because he wants her to see his goodness so she'll come back to him. Now, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will deliver her from my hand. There is a cost of God lifting his hand because we have walked in ways that aren't his. The first cost is this. Your true character will be shown rather than the character you wanted to project. People will start to see who you are. Because there's a thing that God does for us which protects us and he covers us in his grace and he covers in his, in his glory and he shows mercy towards us and that's what people see. But if we keep insisting on wanting things our way, in our time, in, in walking away from God, as he lifts that covering, people will see us for who we really are. Cost number two, verse 11. I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. What she did, or what the, God's people did, that they expected to turn out well, actually turns out badly. So we have plans for how we want everything to be, and we'll keep on going with those plans, and we'll have put them all in motion, and we'll find out that they don't turn out anything like we expected. Cost number three. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me, so I'll make them a forest and the beasts of the fields will come along and eat them up. Cost number three. The provision and what you already have, you will lose. It will fritter away. Why is God doing this? He's doing this so that we will come back because he loves us. How does it happen? How does it happen? How did they get here? Verse 13 says how they got here. How anybody gets this place. Verse 13. Not got it? Oh yeah. For the days of the bowels to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewellery and went after lovers. That's what I was talking about. Using shovel's necklace. But me, she forgot. How do you forget somebody who's treated you so well? How do you forget God's ways? How do you, how do you, how when you've been so passionate about somebody or, or so passionate about God, do you, do you forget his ways and forget him? Unfortunately, it's surprisingly easy. It just takes time. It takes time where you don't invest in the relationship. You see, we, ha we have something that happens to us, and it's called, the psychologists have a word for it, it's called shiny new toy syndrome. And we're always looking for the next best thing, or the quicker way to get where we want to get, or, or 
a way of us achieving something for ourselves. And, and we look for, we, we're always on the lookout for the next thing that might come along to help us do that, or the next person that might come along to help us do that. And shiny new toy syndrome does this to people. It causes us, with each step, to drift away from God's ways. And time of not investing in our relationship causes us to drift away from God's ways. You see, we are designed to be what we worship. We are, God created us in his image. We are images. We are, there's, there's something in us that is designed to image what we see and, and what we follow. And when we have something in our life or some goal or some ambition or, or something w- which we rely on more than God, eventually we take on the image of what is our true God, the thing we're relying on, as opposed to the God. And as we start to take on that image of the other things that we rely on, in practice they become our functional God. Every time something hits us, every time something gets difficult, we start to look to that to provide. And the more we do that, the further we get away from God and we forget him. Now, what does God do about that? Remember all those stories we talked about at the start? They had a twist in the tail. This one has a second twist. It's an Agatha Christie story. There's more than one twist in it. Okay? It's a Robert Ludlum thriller. More than one twist. Everything you've seen up to this point is about to change again. This is why there is hope. You see, God doesn't leave us in that place of having forgot him. He doesn't leave us out there trying to find him, hoping that we will discover his goodness because life's become such a mess. This is what God does to us because of his love. Next verse is, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I'll give her a vineyard from there and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She'll sing there and in the days of her youth, as the days she came up out of the land of Egypt, and it'll be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me husband and no longer master. God doesn't leave us in that place. God comes and shows himself to us And the Holy Spirit is there with us, the comforter, and he's speaking to us and he's calling us back and he's bringing us back to him because he's a God who is passionate and jealous and he has fiery, burning love and he's not going to let go. He's not going to leave us out there. He's lifted his hand of protection and he can't stand it, so he's coming after you. He's coming after you even though he knows that you might say no. He's coming after you to say, will you walk? Will you live with me? Will you stop looking at me as some person that just rules over you and he's out to get you, your master, your Lord? Will you quit that relationship and will you marry me? Will you live as my bride? Will you live in relationship with me because I'm coming after you? 
I've got no other way of reaching you. I've got no other way of finding you. I'm lifting my hand off you. It pains me to see all these things happening in your life. But will you come back? Will you come back to me? And I'm not going to ask you for a far. I'm going to come and I'm going to minister to you and I'm going to allure you back. Even if it's a, I'm in the last in line, I'll still do it for you because I love you. That sort of love can get over any hurdle, any barrier, anything that's done wrong. That sort of love isn't turning around and judging. That sort of love is pursuing in goodness. And even when there's bad stuff it's because it's just the consequences of us going our own way without God and he's lifted his hand off what we're doing. And it's just because he loves us and he wants to show us his goodness. I think that's an incredible thing. I think, think so much. You see, this is Old Testament and it's grace all the way through. Nothing, nothing changes about God He's always pursuing. He's always loving. But when we go our own way and, and, and use what he's given us for our own things, it has consequences. You're going, okay, well, show me that in the New Testament. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. It's an eternal principle that God has put there because it's his goodness in contrast to what we can get that leads us to him, that restores the relationship, that restores his love. And, and he's just waiting there for you. He's waiting there for you. I forgot to tell you to get the kids back. Yeah, could you go and get the kids? You know... The thing that blows me away about God is he never gives up on anybody. Because he never gave up on me. I told you about encountering God's presence. I went out to uh, Sunderland. And at that time, I also said last time that I was ready to walk away from God. Really interesting question that I asked myself as a result of sharing that a few weeks ago is, what was I relying on at the time then if I wasn't wanting God? Because remember, if I didn't encounter God there, I was going to walk away. I'm at that point where God's lifted his hand. What was I relying on? I was relying on the fact that I had a great wife, I had a nice house, I had a good career... <coughs> I loved getting involved in sport. I was running. Uh, I was achieving things. I was achieving so many things. And yet, ultimately, it didn't fulfill. Because the one thing I was seeking was God. Even though I, I didn't want to acknowledge it anymore. Because nothing can fill what I was missing like his presence. You are designed... For God. You are, you, your soul is only whole and complete when it's resting in God's presence. 
When, when we, we try and exist without God's presence and, and without that relationship with him, our soul disintegrates. We live with tension, we live with hurt, we live with pain, we live with not understanding, we live with just this sense of hopelessness when we're not with God. And we need him. And he's there waiting for us. 